Before we start this episode, I want to let listeners know that my conversation today with Sean Hewitt covers some of the difficult things about working with Archive. We discuss violence against LGBTQ plus people and particularly the murder of Declan Flynn. Hello and welcome to Radical, Women and the Irish Revolution. I'm your host, Julie Morrissey, poet in residence at the National Library of Ireland. In this podcast series, I will be joined by a variety of guests to talk about my experience as I think and write about some of the most important women in Irish history. This podcast invites listeners to join my learning and creative processes at the National Library and gives a chance to follow my project as it unfolds. I've been having such great conversations throughout this series, and I'm really happy to be joined for episode three today by Sean Hewitt. Sean Hewitt's debut poetry collection, Tongues of Fire, was published by Jonathan Cape in 2020. It won the Laurel Prize in 2021 and was shortlisted for the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award, the John Pollard Foundation International Poetry Prize, and the Dawkey Literary Award. In 2020, he was chosen by the Sunday Times as one of their 30 under 30 artists in Ireland. His memoir, All Down, Darkness Wide, is forthcoming from Jonathan Cape in the UK and Penguin Press in the US in July this year. He is a book critic for the Irish Times and teaches modern British and Irish literature at Trinity College Dublin. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. Hello. Thanks for being here. (laughs) Thanks for having me. So, Sean, I think I first met you at an Irish studies conference at University College Cork a few years ago. And then you came along to my reading series, Pizza Poetry Pub, which I run in my living room um, pre-COVID. We haven't done it for a while. And I actually think we probably live quite close to each other in, in Dublin too. So our paths have crossed a few times. And then we both ended up as poets in residence at the National Library during the same period. Me in the Decade of Centenaries program and you at the Irish Queer Archive. So maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about the IQA and your residency, um, what it kind of involved and what work you made. Sure. So um, actually the residency came about because I found out about the existence of the IQA and I was talking to Sasha de Boyle, who works at uh, Courts Festival in Galway. And she was really excited about it too and said, oh, I wonder if we could find a way to put a poet in there. Um, I wonder what poet would be suitable. So I was kind of uh, keeping my cards close, even though I wanted it to be me. Um, <laughs> and then she suggested me. Uh, so we went ahead and uh, Sasha put together, um, she's the mastermind, uh, put together a big uh, application with the Arts Council um, who funded it and the NLI supported it too. So I was resident in the Irish Queer Archive at the National Library over the summer of last year, 2021. And it was basically just my job to let my mind roam uh, amongst all of the archival material and to eventually come up with a series of 10 poems. Uh, So I also did some public events and workshops and readings and things like that. But the central aspect was these 10 poems that I had to write. 
That's cool. Because I, I think when I first started at the National Library, I used to kind of catch glimpses of you as I was coming in and out. But I didn't actually know uh, what, like that you were also in residence there in the beginning. Um, but I realized that that quite fast. So that's really exciting. And I kind of, yeah, I like the idea of the poets kind of passing each other in the archive. <laughs> that kind of mm-hmm. gave me a bit of yeah. joy when I was in there. Um, and it's re- I'm really looking forward to... Um, what what kind of comes out of your residency and seeing that um this was for me this is the first time I'm poet in residence um anywhere and I was wondering is that the same for you and um if you had kind of a particular aim or expectations for the role yeah it was the first time for me too um especially in such a a a concerted and and major kind of way I say major in that there was so much material to go through mm. and uh, I've had uh, commissions before to, you know, write a poem about this painting or write a poem about this specific thing. Um, but the IQA is basically, um, you know, an entire 50, 60 years of history uh, and it's a huge amount of documentation. So I didn't really know where to start. Um, so my main expectations, well, what I really wanted to do uh, was to allow myself to kind of just be immersed in the subject matter, uh, to follow any wins or interests that came up. Um, so I went into it kind of free of expectations. Um, and I wanted, the one thing I did want was to somehow make poems that would give a window into the archival material without necessarily being about me per se. Um, a lot of the poems that I write myself uh, tend to have this kind of lyric eye guiding them all the way through. Uh, Whereas I took this as the opportunity to kind of experiment with um, giving a window into a history that was not my own. Uh, And that was kind of one of the challenges that I set myself uh, in looking through the material. Uh, So yeah, I had a great, uh, a great time. Uh, It was, it was a challenge though. Um, that took a while to find my feet. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that actually about um, that kind of move away from the self uh, and the lyric I as being the kind of central organizing principle. And it's actually something I, when I'm teaching, I talk to the students about a lot, about, you know, trying to um, break that habit, at least just, at least to experiment, even if that's where you end up back, you know, if that's really like how you're oriented as a poet. Um, but I'm kind of interested in in breaking away from that. And I have been using secondary material in my work for, for quite a while. Um, in my project, Certain Individual Women, I, I you know, I reconstruct um, parts of Irish legislation and the constitution. So um, for me, kind of being in the archive and working with the material was um, a kind of a similar approach um, in that kind of move away from... Um, that I suppose um, myself being the kind of organizing idea. So was this kind of the first time that you did that in a kind of um, a concerted way? Yeah, I think so. Um, It's interesting because when you talk about the orientation of you as a poet or as a person, I really do think that my orientation is and a lyric eye Mm. so it took a real uh sense of reorientating myself Mm. and often what I found when I was writing these poems that I did write 
was that I was looking at them and they didn't seem like Sean Hewitt poems. And that's quite a disorientating thing because I, I almost felt unable to judge whether they were any good or not because I have my own criteria against which I can judge my own poems. But the poems that were came out of the archive and were, uh, I saw myself in some way uh, curating bits of the archive into poems, uh, almost collaging them in. And I liked what I had in the end, uh, but I was never fully sure how to how to judge it um, because I wasn't the, the main event. This sounds very self-centered, um, but it it it, um, it threw me off. I suppose it, it it made me have to come up with different criteria uh, for judging uh, my own poems and kind of expanded. Uh, and worried the boundaries a little bit of how I saw my own um, writing practice. Uh, I think. Yeah, I think was- that makes sense. I'm, I'm. Well, I think because like um, you become used to a way uh, of writing and assessing your work, and it's uh, like partly, I guess, it's intuition. Like you kind of know when something is good or when you've done it the way that you want to do it. And if you're taking a different approach, that becomes a little bit more blurry. And there is that kind of, when you're working with archive, that balance between yourself as the poet and the material that you're working with. And, you know, I was trying to kind of unlock certain ideas or events in the archive using poetry and trying to bring those materials and ideas like into the public consciousness in a new way, but also letting the voices of the archive kind of come through. So it's a, it's a quite a delicate balance and then making it good as well, which is a whole other concern. Um, so I just was kind of, you know, when I was in the library, I, I thought, you know, because I knew you were in there too. And sometimes I would think about how you were going about things. Um, so I just like to know a little bit more about how you used the archive materials um, and whether this might have been different to how you might have used the archive previously, maybe in academic work. Yeah, um, usually, I suppose with academic work, I have gone into archives with a very, um, with a very considered sense of what I want to look at and what in particular I'm searching for. So I'll be going in, and you know, any mention of Charles Darwin, that's what I'm looking for. So I go in and I rifle through it all, and then I come out with uh, my information. So I'm kind of going into the archive with with some intent. Uh, the only slightly different way that that happened was when I was writing my book on J.M. Singh, where I just read his entire archive. Um, and that was just a sense, again, of that immersion uh, in, the, in the work. And I made loads of notes, and I didn't know what was useful and what was not. Um, so that's kind of the way that I approached this archive, too. Um, it was. It is huge, though. There are um, a quarter of a million press cuttings. There's hundreds of books. Um, there is a complete set of every queer publication published on the island of Ireland since the 70s, I think. And then there's posters, photographs, films, uh, the records of... Uh, activist organizations, community groups, everything, you know, you could never get through it all. Um, So I kind of looked at the catalog to begin with, and uh, the catalog just lists 
um, a brief overview of what is in boxes. Uh, each item is not individually um, described. Uh, so I just kind of went through boxes that I thought sounded interesting. They might have an interesting title or, or, or something funny or strange. Uh, so I picked out a couple and I just started there. And sometimes I got to a box and I thought, no, this is not it because it would be a, a box of, um, you know, uh, statistics, hundreds of pages of statistics or something. And I, I didn't know how to, how to work with that. And then other things were, um, had a more human element, I suppose, to them. Uh, and that spoke, that seemed more likely to end up in a poem. Um, so I just made loads of notes and took a load of photographs. Um, to begin with, the archive was, or well, the reading room was closed for a while during lockdown. So I used the uh, digital archives, uh, the photography archives, Christopher Robson uh, photographic archive, which actually everyone can, can look at. It's on the NLI website. So I used those first and kind of went through and spent days looking at all these photographs of pride marches and stuff. Um, so that kind of set the scene in a way for when I went into the archive. Uh, and I just basically wrote notes of anything that I thought was interesting and took photos of things I thought were interesting and made my own little mini archive on the laptop um, and then went back to them uh, once once I had a sense of uh, what might kind of coalesce into a poem, uh, what were the key recurring subjects or themes. Uh, that's how I went about it. Yeah, yeah, I find that so interesting now that you have your own mini archive of the archive, because <laughs> mm. I do too now, you know, I have the things that I've pulled out and kept and, you know, also I've followed um, kind of materials in the archive kind of outside of the archive. Um, so what are you going to do with your mini archive? <laughs> it's a good question. Well, actually, we're going to, um, there's a couple of things already coming out of it. We're, we're going to put on kind of the debut event uh, for, for, the, um, for the poems in April at, at Courts Festival. Or is it March? I think it's April. Um, and I think, you know, there was talk of, of kind of using some of the notes and photos from the archive uh, on a display or on a screen whilst I was reading the poems because, uh, I mean, maybe we'll get to this later, but the way that I wrote the poems was uh, they're all cited and footnoted in, in a way uh, that is more, uh, you know, common in an academic piece of work. Uh, but I wanted to have the sources for all of the bits of language and phrases and events that I was referencing. Uh, so I can kind of imagine these, um, you know, posters with the poems on and then all of the source material around them. Uh, and I'm also, I've just written a, an essay for a magazine called Holy Show. Uh, I don't know if you know of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and they're going to publish some of the, the photos alongside my kind of notes on the archive rather than the poems. Um, so that's good. I'm making use of it. Uh, but then it seems a shame that I have, um, you know, all of this work in a, in a document and I have the poems that came from it, but I don't know. It's just I have this little archive now, a, a little set of uh, thoughts and 
interesting things that maybe nothing will ever come of. Yeah, I think when it's interesting, all the material you kind of end up with when you're writing in that way. Um, And I, before I used to be very, like, I never wanted to show that, like the process of going, that goes into the poems. Um, But I think the more I started working with secondary material, um, you know, I realized that people were really interested in seeing that process, even if I wasn't totally up for always showing it. Um, Mm -hmm. People were interested in that. And um, I did like I did a piece for um, for a a feature on Fonica that was in the um, an online journal Hotel UK where they kind of asked for, yeah, for some of those images that I use in the research to do with certain individual women and to write a little bit about like the process. And there's no, there's no poems included in that piece. It's just the kind of background. Mm. Um, Mm. But I, yeah, I'm kind of, um, I suppose I'm accepting that that work is also now part of the poem, right? So I feel less uh, strange about showing it. Yeah, yeah. And also, I think, you know, the nice thing about poems and or, or even writing about the archive is, is that it might send people back to the archive. It might send uh, the people who read the poems back to these materials. I kind of thought about my role in this writing in a very different way that I would think about my role in writing a collection of poems. Um, as in, I thought of myself as kind of spokesperson or uh you know someone who might point to the to the archive and get people to to go to it so i wanted to have this kind of shop window in the poems and and there are riches behind them uh, and you have to go and find them yourself um yeah did you think about it in a similar way when you were um looking looking in the archive yeah i mean i think i probably worked in this and I'm working in a similar way to you and that like I, I kind of let the materials lead me where I'm going um, and I you know I read a lot of correspondence and um, yeah a lot of letters actually um, and then I just like um, think about them for a long time mm-hmm. um, but I like I'm working on uh, women's roles in the revolutionary period and I initially went into the archive with four women in mind um, that was Dorothy McArdle, Lily O'Brennan, Kathleen Clark, and Annie O'Farrelly. And I'm I'm very interested in those four women. And some of those women have made it very prominently into the poems I'm writing. And I discussed McArdle at length with Susan Cahill in, in episode one. But also, like, the more I was in the archive, the more women emerged. Um, like, Elizabeth O'Farrell has come out pretty um, strongly in my work. Um And I suppose I was really surprised by my, like the very significant gaps in my knowledge about um, that time period and about those women and women in general and coming a man and all of the activism that was happening. So I suppose, yeah, like I kind of felt that, that, you know, those gaps are probably not untypical and there is an opportunity um, for us as as poets and residents to kind of guide people back to to these stories and materials um, 
like this because it, it, it was a real moment it has been a real like time of discovery for me um especially in the context of coming a man like it, it really allowed me to understand my own experiences of womanhood in Ireland in a much deeper way and especially in relation to activism because I was so involved um with the repeal um and I really found myself questioning why these histories were have been so lacking in in my own education mm -hmm. like at at, at second level so you know I didn't I didn't study um history in university but I felt like that um these events and these women were so central to the formation of the state that I was kind of shocked that I didn't really yeah. know anything about them it was never really mm. presented to me at any point and i i find that like quite troubling so there is a nice um opportunity to go back and and kind of bring these back into public consciousness um and something you know some people and things caught my imagination more than others um and yeah, I, I guess I just learned a lot during that period. So I'm just wondering, like, if that was similar for you and that there were particular events that, you know, that you really felt connected with or, you know, how much you kind of knew about the IQA before you started. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I resonate a lot with what you've just said about um, looking into the archive and um, almost being confronted with your own uh lack of knowledge in certain areas and actually sometimes it's quite uh, an unnerving thing or I did I found it unnerving anyway because there were certain things that I was reading um and you know I'm aware that uh, newspapers spread misinformation sometimes I'm aware that there are uh, people saying things that aren't necessarily true uh, so I wasn't sure what to take as uh as fact and what to take as uh, a written record that might be gossipy or it might be inflammatory uh, or it might be defamatory or it might just be serving um, uh, another agenda. So I had to, um, I, I found that I had to actually, my, my biggest resource was um, queer people in Dublin. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to, I'm lucky enough to be friends with uh, Tony Walsh, who was one of the original um custodians of the archive and the amount of times I was like Tony can you like is that true or is like I've heard something about this but I'm not sure that that is that did that really happen and inevitably it did really happen um but I'd never heard about it um so yeah there are a couple of events that that really stuck out uh, some I had um heard of and and knew that I was going to to spend some time thinking about so so the Declan Flynn murder was uh in my mind um and there are boxes and boxes of material about that and about the first pride marches um some things that I discovered were the Telefriend archives are really fascinating. Um, so uh, they're kind of in, in the way of, of gay switchboard or LGBT switchboard. Um, they're called Telefriend in, in Ireland because apparently there was a struggle um, advertising the phone number with the word gay in it. So they couldn't call it gay switchboard because no paper would take an advertisement for and, and list the number. Uh, so they called it Telefriend instead. Uh, and that was... Uh, based at the Hirschfield Centre in Dublin, um, 
which I think housed a lot of archival material to begin with and then was burnt down. Um, so there's a, there's a bit of a gap there as well in, in the archive. You think of all the things that are, are lost in that fire. Um, some fun things are the um, alternative Miss Island materials where there's all these um, materials relating to this drag pageant. I don't know if you've heard of it. It stopped like 10, 10 years ago or something. I've heard of um, it, but I didn't really know no. that much about it um, until I kind of saw it in your notes. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, uh, you know, everyone knows RuPaul's Drag Race, sure. I guess now, but it's kind of a kind of a similar uh, thing. And there are all these catalogs and brochures um, with the names of the contestants, and they did like a swimwear, daywear, and evening wear competition, and um, and they raised a, a load of money for first. Um, it started off for the Rape Crisis Center, and then it became uh, an HIV/AIDS uh, fundraiser. Um, so that was really interesting as well, um, and you know all, all the all the badges and posters, and uh, sometimes there are just occasional files of of photographs. There was one from uh, the Cork Women's Pottery Weekend. Uh, so there are just all these black and white photographs of of uh, women in Cork on a pottery weekend. Uh, so you never know what you're going to find, but. Um, yeah, those those are some of the things that stuck out and and kind of made it into the into the poems uh, and other other things from the poems are kind of all joined together on themes. I think, um, yeah, uh, the badges and the uh, I have a poem at the end about the, kind of inspired by the the prize giving of alternative Miss Island. They had. Uh, uh, prize like the the first prize is something like um, you know a, a piece of bog butter although it wasn't bog butter but it was something like that I don't know. Um, yeah it was, it was great but yeah that's cool I didn't really know that much about that um, yeah it's it's uh, it is kind of I think startling when you start to learn about all these things that you know that I feel like I must have been surrounded by but somehow didn't pick up it's a very strange feeling and and then as you say a strange position to be in as the poet kind of presenting the these stories and and events um I you know uh, you know because I'm I'm not a historian so I you know I'm not I'm not going to have a you know a completely full picture um of these, uh, you know, these women and these events and, and what I'm looking into, um, no matter how long I spend in the archive, you know, there's going to be those gaps. So, yeah, I, I kind of, I suppose I tried to follow, similar to you, like I, I followed the material. Um, I read a lot outside the archive. I did a lot of kind of field work where I, I visited places, um, went to a lot of graveyards. <laughs> and um, and the, when you were talking about the Hirschfield Centre there um, and a uh, and the, it, it burned down, but um, there is a commemorative plaque at the site on Fine Street and Temple Bar. So those are the kinds of things. Like when I, if I found out like um, information like that, I would go, I would go to the site and kind of take photos and and follow things in that way. Um, and as we were kind of talking about before, the, those like those little um, bits kind of end up as somehow kind of part of the project and part of the poem, even if they're not like actually in the poem. Um, and, you know, 
it, part of like working with the material ca like can be challenging and difficult and you know there's a lot of um I mean a lot of the accounts um in these letters that I'm reading are you know they're filled with like with violence and it's graphic and it's just it's disturbing at times um there's a letter from um, Dorothy McArdle to the Irish American political activist Joseph McGarity in 1924 that I was reading recently and she's writing about the violence of the free state troops and the poverty in Ireland at the time and she says I'm quoting here I'm making myself miserable writing about all these things and must be making you miserable too and you know it's it's of course different McArdle writing a letter to McGarity than um, writing poems about those events. But there is kind of a question about the emotional impact of engaging with the archive materials. And I recently read your article in the Irish Times with uh, T. S. Eliot Prize-winning poet Joelle Taylor, and you talk about her use of archive. And I was particularly taken with Taylor's idea of the self as archive. You know, she says, "I am an archive." So is that something that you relate to either in your poetry practice or maybe in terms of your forthcoming memoir? You know, I think a lot about different types of archives because um, I work with both kind of like personal or like family archive, kind of informal archive. But also, of course, I'm working with institutional archives like at the National Library. Um, so I'm kind of interested in how both those those things inform my work and I'm curious about how you might think about the parameters of archive in your work. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's, I'm glad you brought it up because, uh, you know, it sounds like you had some similar stresses uh, reading uh, through some of the material as I did. I, there was one day uh, when I woke up and I decided I couldn't go. I, I didn't want to, to go into the archive again that day because I'd been in three or four days that week and I kept on coming out and had kind of this uh, pervasive uh, feeling of being unsettled or, you know, anxious, I guess, um, because you're sat with a lot of material that I guess it happened to people like you and it's impossible, I think, to, to read it all day, every day, and not start to take on some of the uh, the things that are being discussed or to, to remember certain things being said to you or, you know, those personal triggers that come up. Um, and, yeah, I suppose, um, you know, to think about Joelle's idea of the self as archive, um, one really interesting thing about reading the... IQA materials was that it um, reminded me of things I had forgotten or, or thought that I had forgotten. I obviously hadn't forgotten them, um, but it drew attention to, I mean, to extend the metaphor, boxes in my archive that I had forgotten about and were uh, dusty in the bottom of a corner somewhere. Um, and it, sometimes all it would take is a line in the archive or a little flyer or uh, an article in a newspaper and I could unlock a box in my own archive that corresponded to it and think, ah, yeah, actually, I do remember that. Um, or I do remember people used to say things like that uh, and I'd forgotten about that. Uh, so I suppose in some ways it was... Um, looking at the archive was also like an act of remembering for me. And there's only so much remembering you can do 
every day before you want to close the box back up and, and go home. So I think, you know, I did take a couple of, of weeks where I didn't go into the archive as well and just sat with the material and told myself that actually sitting with the material is work as well. You know, I'm processing what I'm reading. Um, so, yeah, it was... Um, on a personal level, it was really um, revealing and, and gave me a much deeper understanding of of myself as archive, uh, just looking through that archive too. Um, I mean, I imagine it felt the same for, for you, reading um, reading some of the stuff in, in your archives. Yeah, because a lot of it, you know, I think initially I was just really struck by how extraordinary the women I was looking at were and they're you know a lot of the women are writers and artists and activists so obviously like I you know women that I really identify with and really admire and I was really struck by their kind of um, creativity and their persistence and I found that really um, uplifting um and really grounding, like I really felt like I understood things about feminist activism in Ireland that I had not maybe fully grasped before. But at the same time, um, there is like a kind of a corollary to that like celebratory feeling of the, these incredible women because they also were going through really significant struggles. And, um, you know, there's a lot of... Um, I mean, I I think, of course, like it, it took a lot of bravery what what everyone was doing at that time. But um, you know, there was a lot of violence, as I said, a lot of loss, like a huge amount of grief and loss. Um, that I think is not something that I like that I've heard widely discussed really in in detail. Like, and I think that's what when you're reading correspondence between the women, um that you really get an appreciation that like, of course we're like, you know, we celebrate these women as, as figures, as historical people who did these great things, but like, they're also regular people who went through real grief and loss yeah. and trauma. And I think that I got more of a sense of that than I had before from reading the letters and that kind of thing, like understanding that, um, there is, there's another side to, well, I guess like this is the kind of complexity of commemoration as well. You know, mm. it, it, mm. it involves a lot. It's not just, it's yeah. not just celebration, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, you remind me of, uh, there's a line that is almost the, the motto of Alternative Miss Island, um, uh, in the, in the brochures, it just says, uh, glamour rooted in despair. Um, and I, I think it's kind of a, a similar idea, although maybe you're not talking about glamour, but celebration and achievement and all of these things that we, uh, you know, try to remember from, from the archive are, are all also rooted in um, trauma and, and in huge loss. And I think perhaps the, the feeling of reading through the archive is you don't always get a sense of the triumph you don't always get a sense of what it all accumulates to um you know you'll be reading through years worth of 
people trying to get some law changed and being battered down and have, being defunded and being kicked out and having the uh, the place burnt down and then keeping on going. And it gives you huge admiration for those people um, that were given up every day of their life to, to, to do all of this important work. But it's also quite, I mean, if it's draining to read it, uh, I don't know how it must be to live it, <laughs> which is uh, gives you a huge admiration for them. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it makes complete sense to me that you're saying that, you know, there were periods of time that you kind of spent away from the archive and away from the materials. Um, because I do think that you need that mental break, I think, when, you, when you're that immersed. But also, I think, uh, I don't know what you think, Sean, but I think, like, for me as a poet, like, I'm always working. Like, you know, even when I'm not, like, my, my brain is still doing stuff, even when it looks like I'm not working, even when I'm just sitting, I'm like, the, you know, the work is happening, whether I'm, like, sitting at a desk and I'm at the archive and I'm, like, reading, or whether I'm, like, you know, having a stroll or whatever. I'm like, the work is happening, right? So, yeah. Yeah, and that's why it's kind of arbitrary to, you know, I'd said in my head, or the, the the residency had, I can't remember now, something like 21 days in the archive. So I was like, okay, well, I'll go in from 10 when it opens to uh, is it 4 it closes and I'll do 21 days, um, which is nonsense really because uh, I did, you know, I did the days, but then there was all the time that I was thinking around it and you don't process it. Uh, I mean, I don't know, did you write in the archive? Like, did you amalgamate those? Your residency, was it all done in the archive or was it also done walking and at home? Um, I I was obviously, you know, I am obviously in the archive very frequently Um and I did actually draft poems in the reading room because sometimes I was just, you know, I was reading something and all of a sudden I just was like, okay, I'm just going to try and get something down on paper. But I did a lot, like I am doing a lot of the work um, outside of the archive too, like like visiting places, taking photographs, walking around. And also like, for, you know, for the podcast, like talking to people actually has been a huge part of the work and all of that is going into the poems. So, yeah, I think there is that sense of, um, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, I'm going to go in in these days during these times. But sometimes I could go in for 40 minutes and read something um, also because, you know, it's kind of convenient for me. Um, you know, I can drop in, I can go and read something and, and then go off. So sometimes I might go in and just read a letter a few times, like when I was writing about um, Elizabeth O'Farrell and the surrenders, I kind of went in to read her account of the surrender sev like several times over the course of a week, maybe. And like on those days, I might not have really read any other materials because I was, I was kind of invested in, in that. So I didn't really, um, and I don't really in general in my practice, I, I try to stay away from giving myself kind of bright lines of like, I'm going to work from nine till five on this particular thing. Cause I just find my, my brain doesn't do that. Yeah, no, I was the same. I, I, you know, I would be cooking the dinner or I'd be at home and I just 
well, that probably quite familiar feeling to you as well, that sudden sense that, oh, the poem is arriving uh, and I'd have to go and get out the laptop and, and do it. Um, so they would just kind of arrive when they arrived, but that immersion is is really important because you have to immerse yourself in order to for something to arrive at the end of it. Um, so, yeah, I did kind of... Uh, occasionally make um documents in the in the library where i thought oh possible poem arriving about this but don't know what it is here are a few images or ideas um and i would just drop in ideas or images if i ever read anything that seemed to coalesce into that poem or, or another poem um and then occasionally one of the files would turn into a poem um which was nice um and I think I could have, well, if you put someone in that archive, they would, they would write poems endlessly. I think uh, you could never get to the bottom of it. Um, and I hope actually, I think that there may be uh, scope for another poet in residence, which would be great. Yeah, I hope so. It would be nice. Um, Cause it would be just interesting to see what, you know, what different people do with the material. Especially for you, since you're so familiar with it now, that would be quite cool yeah. to see. Um, I also had some kind of very practical challenges when I was in the archive. Like, um, I really loved Alice Milligan's letters, but I just could not read her handwriting sometimes. And she wrote these <laughs> like really unwieldy letters where, um, you know, like she would use kind of every part of the page, which I, I really liked. I thought it was very poetic, but sometimes I just I could not follow like where she was going or what what was written and I was just wondering if anything like that like more kind of logistical I suppose happened for you in the archive um most of the archival material that I was looking at or I think actually most of the material that is available to view in the IQA is already official uh in a way uh, it's usually typed or it's uh from published media or it's kind of the minutes of meetings and stuff. I'm told that there are other documents in there, but they uh, likely relate to living people. So they're not allowed to be viewed. Um, so all stuff like personal correspondence and things like that, that is uh, personal is not uh, viewable. There were a couple of letters in there and some um, anonymized um questionnaires from youth groups which were really interesting too um but i never had a problem with handwriting i think i think the 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 main problem i i uh, came across was piecing together uh chronologies of things um and also well occasional uh, bits of slang that have gone out of use um references to um to either public figures or or kind of you know pop bands or something that i didn't know uh and people you know in the way that we do wouldn't refer to the whole person's name they would just be saying oh you know well obviously everyone would know who kylie was <laughs> uh, but kind of the, the 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 70s equivalent of you know a dublin uh a queer artist and they would just say oh pete is doing xyz and you wouldn't know who that was so they're kind of those missing bits of information that i i would need to talk to someone much more knowledgeable than me to uh, to figure out but uh yeah it was actually 
very accessible overall. That's quite cool, though. I think that idea of you know someone being referred to as Pete or whatever, because I I I think in the Irish context, like you know the communities are so small, and yeah. it, I think it it's um it's nice to see that kind of closeness where you know because I always think about that in poetry, like we all kind of know each other. Mm. You know, we've all kind of, yeah. yeah, we all kind of know each other. Yeah. And I feel like if there was some kind of um, archive of all of us talking to each other, it would be in that kind of casual way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And just yeah. speaking of handwriting, I'm just actually curious, do you, do you handwrite your poems? Um, no, I handwrite my notes. Um, so I usually have uh, a notebook um, and I write all my notes in there and just not in poem form. Uh, and then occasionally I might begin, you know, with a couplet or something and, and feel that it's coming into a poem. But usually I will write it out onto the computer from there. Um, mainly because it has a sense of clarity, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I can see how it looks like. I know it will be, you know, if it were published, it would be published typed. So I know how it looks often I, I I did used to to write them out by hand um and then I'd be disappointed that one line looked shorter than I thought it was or something you know really irritating because my handwriting had stretched it out or um whatever else so yeah I tend to type it yeah I I I kind of I think I of from very early on was using the screen on the page just because I found it easier like you say to to actually see what the poem was going to look like. Cause it's very hard. Mm. Like it's very hard when you're handwriting, like you say, like the line length could be anything. Like you don't, you don't know what it's going to look like. And and just the whole space of the page is, is very different. Like the blank space and everything. So I, yeah. I also tend to write like straight onto the screen uh, or most recently in the notes app of my iPhone, which I really hate, <laughs> really truly hate doing that. But sometimes I'm just so stuck. <laughs> So um, I guess we'll wrap up shortly, but I'm just kind of wondering, um, I mean, I found the experience in the archive like really generative overall for my practice. Like I've had lots of ideas and there's kind of new strands that I want to follow that are kind of beyond the parameters of this current project. And I'm wondering if that has kind of happened for you after all your work in the archive. Yeah, um, I think one you know, the idea that we were talking about right at the start of getting outside yourself or reorientating your, uh, your way of looking at things, um, that's kind of given me a new way, I think, of getting outside of myself in a poem. Um, and it's something I've noticed only just recently. I, mean, I don't write poems very often. Uh, they don't come to me very often. But um, I've started, um, I think, writing poems that maybe tangentially about me, um, but feature other people or other voices coming into them. Uh, and I think that must be down to the archive in a way, because I was, I was shown a way in, in which um, other people could speak inside a poem that I wrote. Uh, and that started to happen now in my own poem. So it, it seems like it's got into the fabric of, of the poem a little bit. Um, so I'm excited to see what happens there. Um, it's weird. It's kind of like getting to know yourself in a new way. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, yeah, that sounds great. 
and really interesting. And I do think I agree. It's like getting to know yourself in a new way. But I, I find that exciting as well, because I think, um, you know, I guess sometimes I just, earlier on, I would think like, OK, I kind of know how to write a poem now and I know what my poems do and I know I know when they're good like we were saying earlier like I I just have a sense of things so I think it's very like refreshing and probably very productive um to get into a different mindset of kind of not knowing Mm, yeah yeah definitely so um thank you for that great conversation I really enjoyed that um I am gonna pass over to you in a moment I know you're gonna kindly share one of your poems um from your work at the archive with us today um I just want to say thanks to the listeners um you can find out more about Sean's work at seanhewitt.com my website is juliemorrissey.com and the references from our discussion today will be available in the episode show notes at the National Library website. So Sean, I'm going to pass over to you to close out the episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Um, right. Yeah, I thought I would, I'm d- it's just dawning on me now that the poem I was chosen to read is, is quite um grim way to leave people so so I'll probably jump in and say something more uplifting at the end um but I suppose um for listeners uh you should imagine this poem with footnotes um at the end of occasional lines or after every other phrase um this poem is split into two parts and all of the words are or images are taken from um newspaper articles about um, the Declan Flynn killing. Uh, So the first part is in the voice of um, one of the killers, and the second part is in the voice of Declan Flynn. Uh, And it comes with an epigraph uh, from a court statement reported in the Irish Times, 9th of March, 1983. We didn't mean to kill Mr. Flynn. I thought he was gay and was in the park to meet other gay people. We had been queer bashing during the summer. One. It was easy to get good sticks. There were plenty of trees with low branches. We were waiting in the shadows there with cudgels, our hoods over our faces. Paddy shouted twice, get the bastard. We'd battered 20 steamers that summer, the team of us clearing the park of queers and pedos. Maybe that time we went too far, but with perverts you have to do something physical, castration, I don't know, something. So we ran, all of us, and chased him until he fell, and all I can think of now is the blood coming from the man's mouth. I turned him on his side so he wouldn't choke. He was heavy. I remember that. And then he went quiet, limp, and it sunk in that he was after dying. Two. It was a warm night in Fairview. Not an olive grove, but another Gethsemane of birch and sycamore by the brackish tide. The obscenities of the rooks and gulls, good for hiding in, which was its curse and its blessing. I had a stammer and froze up when they shouted. 
And the trees I trusted to cover me lent them their branches, flaying and whipping until the shadow fell. And that was me on the ground when he came, just a slight gurgling noise, the blood pumping from my mouth. I drowned on it, they said. They made my own life drown me. And my father weeping by the fire, a betraying kiss, perhaps, but no stone rolled back, no ascension. They walked out of court free, he said, but my son cannot walk out of Glasnevin. Okay, now I have to say a happy thing before I leave you. Oh, um, that was excellent. But that was good. Really Thank moving. you very much yeah. for having me. Um, yeah, it's it's... It's really interesting to to pull together um, the, you know, just phrases and things like that, and you you find people saying very similar things or or being, uh, you know, poetic in in um, quotation marks in in an everyday sense. You know, talking about Fairview as Gethsemane or um, you know this uh, this kind of haunting image from the father there, my son cannot walk out of Glasnevin. Um, and the, the this court statements from the killers have almost no remorse in them at all. So they're, uh, they're kind of um, chilling, but very direct. Uh, so I just kind of gave them their own uh, poem there because I think it gets across without me having to come in um, a sense of, of the very matter-of-fact way that they talk about it. Um, well, thanks very much for having me. I'm sorry to leave on that. No, a, thank <laughs> you for sharing that. I think it's really moving and powerful and important. So thank you for sharing it. Thank you very much. This episode of Radical Women and the Irish Revolution is created as part of the Poet in Residence program at the National Library of Ireland. Supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Geltok, Sport and Media, under the Decade of Centenaries program 2012 to 2023. Sound and production are by the Museum of Literature Ireland. The music is by Feda.